uh, introduce our new, uh, our new study for the next few months. You know, I was um, thinking about some, uh, a, a movie that came out, uh, well, when I, when I was young, and it was a pretty big, uh, big deal, a movie came out called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was about, I don't know, maybe you've heard of it or seen it. It was about this um, globe-trotting archaeologist that was actually after the actual biblical Ark of, of the Covenant. Um, and they actually, you know, looked at Scripture to kind of learn about, you know, what this, and, and when they made this whole plot, you know, what, what would be significant about the, uh, the Ark. And it just captured people's imaginations, you know, this, this adventurer who would go out and search for these, you know, treasures and things of antiquity. And, and so it obviously spawned all kinds of sequels. And when I was growing up, before all the sequels came, it even spawned spinoffs and copycats of television shows and things that tried to, to mimic it uh, because it, it so captured people's imagination that this individual would go on this amazing quest. Uh, one of them was Tales of the Golden Monkey. Yep, that was a TV show, Tales of the Golden Monkey. But when I saw that, I was like, yes, another guy after some treasure, you know, and, it was, and he looked like him, he had the hat on and all that kind of uh, thing. And I just thought, like, how, how, how cool that was that there was always this story of this, 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 this quest and adventure, and each new one had a, some different quest. But, you know, there's nothing new about that, because that actually started way, way before uh, Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford came together to make that. Um, it started actually quite a bit earlier. There is um, a quest that takes place in, in Scripture, and it, is, it takes us on this adventure although it sort of does it in an interesting uh, way. And what is this uh, quest? What is this book? It's, well, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes and the quest for meaning. That is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, um, we're obviously going off this adventure theme here that you can see here. Um, the quest, the idea of going on a quest is nothing new. As Solomon will even say here, I'm giving some of these things away, in this book, there's nothing new under the sun. Raiders of the Lost Ark was nothing new. It was a copy of something old. The quest is something here, and it doesn't start here in Ecclesiastes. This also is a copy of something old, but it's written in such a way as to sort of grab our attention, to bring us into this idea. Here's, here's an individual that is after something of value. And the thing that he's after is meaning. Meaning. What is the meaning of life? That's probably one of the greatest quests of all time. Who hasn't asked that question? Is there a meaning to life? And if so, what is it? That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we're going to start with an introduction here because, first of all, you have a very awkward title, right? This probably wouldn't make a good movie because people would be going, what is Ecclesiastes this, right? They wouldn't they would, they would even know what that says, Ecclesiastes. Well, that is the Greek and Latin translation of the book. The Hebrew is Koheleth, Koheleth. Remember, we're in the Old Testament now. We've been in the New Testament for so long, you guys are all used to the Greek. We're looking at Hebrew words now. Get ready, you're going to learn a whole lot of Hebrew in the next couple of months. Koaleth, and it means one who gathers, specifically the people. And the, um, the Septuagint, which is the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the term Ecclesiastes. It means preacher. That is derived from Ecclesia, 
which is the word we use for the church or the assembly, the congregation, the called out ones. You are the ecclesia. And so the title refers to the one who addresses the ecclesia, the ecclesiastes, the preacher. So if you want to make a little note, what does that mean? What does ecclesiastes mean? The preacher. And so as you go through this book, you'll no doubt see that, the preacher, the preacher. The preacher says this, the preacher found this, the preacher thought that. That's because that's the name of the book. But who is the author? Now, funny enough, many have really struggled with who the author might be. I've told you before, I'm a fairly simple man. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1 to see if we can't figure this out ourselves. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we have a pretty big hint right off the get-go. This is a son of David, and he happens to be a king in Jerusalem. And if you skip down to verse 12, we get a little bit more information. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So we find out the preacher, the book the name is named after, right? Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is the one who is the king of Israel in Jerusalem. And he is the son of David. Pretty good so far. We've got some pretty big clues. Skip down to verse 16. He says, I, have com- I commune with my heart, saying, Look, I have gained, attained greatness, have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. So we have a king of Israel in Jerusalem who's a son of David who is also very wise, has great knowledge. Boy, I wonder who this could be. We go to chapter 2 for some more clues. Look at verses uh, 4 and on. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my houses. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, not me, (laughs) the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained in me. So a son of David, who's a king of Israel in Jerusalem, who had great wisdom and great wealth and riches. Hmm. And then you go all the way to the end of Ecclesiastes, to chapter 12, for one final clue. Look at verses 9 and 10. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. So this man also wrote down Proverbs. I, I'm baffled. I don't know if we, have, if we have enough clues as to who this could be, why commentators really struggle to find out who this could be uh, is beyond me, because this certainly lo- looks like a man I know, Solomon. And we go to 1 Kings chapter 3, I think you'll see it fairly clearly. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. Just stay there for a minute because we're going to look at a, a couple of things there. 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. 
This just gives us a description of Solomon that maybe we can plug in to this uh, preacher's description. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 6, And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father. So Solomon is David's son. Because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him, and you've given him a son to sit on his throne. So he's also a king who's David's son. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you've asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings in all your days. Boy, that sure seems to match up with the preacher we see in Ecclesiastes 1. Well, that's probably because that is Solomon. <laughs> it is indeed Solomon. It's probably written near the end of his life, closer to around 931 BC, but critics still want to attribute this book to an unknown source written some 500 years later, which would have been during the divided kingdom after Solomon. And there are a few interesting facts that will support Solomon's authorship, which are in addition to the, the passage that we just looked at, in addition to what we've just seen. And I think it's very interesting, and I want you to know about it. The author seems to be familiar with ancient literature of the time. Um, which would have been accessible to Solomon in this time when he had this kingdom and he had great wealth and when he had people coming to him to learn about his wisdom, that he would have access to ancient literature of different cultures. But to have that happen to him later, 500 years later, or to someone else later, during the divided kingdom, doesn't seem to make sense. And if you remember, the kingdom is indeed divided because in first uh, kings, again, you don't have to turn there if you don't uh, want it or you were just there, but in chapter 11, we hear this, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor are they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods, and Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. If you remember, because Solomon's heart was turned away, because he disobeyed the Lord and had all these wives, the Lord tore the kingdom from Solomon. And so there's a prophet that goes to Jeroboam, who was his superintendent at the time, and, and uh, tears his cloak and tears into 10 pieces and says, that's what the Lord's going to do. And that's exactly what happened. After Solomon's death, his superintendent, Jeroboam took 10 of the tribes, became Israel in the north, right? 
And his son, Rehoboam, took two of the tribes. He became Judah in the south. And so there's a divided kingdom. And so um, before that all took place, though, Solomon had this wonderful, powerful, wealthy, influential kingdom. And he would have had access to literature from all kinds of cultures because he would have been a student of these things. And now, why do I bring all this up? Because one of the things that would have been available to Solomon would have been ancient Egyptian poetry. Because today we have some of these things and we can decipher them and we can read them. And one of them is called the Harper Songs or Songs of the Harper. It's an inscription that was found in a, in a tomb. It was probably a song. It's a poem. And in the Harper Song, in particularly in the tomb of King Intef, here's this poem. It begins with lamenting the cycle of passing generations and grieving over the silence of the graves of the long-dead nobles. And right here in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon does the same thing. In verse 4, one generation passes away and another generation comes. And then he grieves over their loss in verse 11. There's no remembrance of any of these things. Um, the, the poem recommends then instead rejoice while, while one is still alive. Wear fine linen. Anoint yourself with oil. And when you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, turn there really briefly. I just want you to see this. You, you see these things in here. The idea is that since, since you can't escape death, you can't take your earthly possessions into the afterlife, uh, the poem goes on to say, then you should just follow your heart's inclination, right? Do what you want to do here on earth. But look what Solomon says in nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head uh, lack no oil. And then he adds, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which she has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. And so there's similarities in what we find in the Harper song to what we find here, but not just in the Harper song. There is another ancient uh, manuscript that's even closer in similarity. It comes from Mesopotamia. It's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Have you heard of that? Probably some of you had read it in school. My daughter had to read it for school this year. So I'm very familiar with it because I had to grade her papers. She had to write about the similarities between the Epic of Gilgamesh's account of the flood, and yes, it's in there, with the biblical account of the flood. And obviously, which one came first? <laughs> the biblical account. The Epic of Gilgamesh is just their version of the flood. And so that was a, a documented manuscript that would have maintained um, um, they would have maintained in Mesopotamia, and no doubt Solomon was able to read these wonderful works and was inspired and maybe pulled some of those ideas because many scholars look at what he says here in verses 7 to 10, what we just read, as being directly taken, or at least the thoughts taken, from the Epic of Gilgamesh. There is a tavern keeper who, who gives advice to the hero, hero Gilgamesh, and this is the summary of the message. In view of the pending death of all humankind... The task of mortals is to make the most of life, to eat, to drink, to be merry, to be clean, dress radiantly, delight in your children, and provide joy for your spouse. That's just a truncated version. It's, it's longer than that. And so they, they've long noted the similarity to the advice of Siduri, that's the tavern keeper, and the advice of the preacher here in Ecclesiastes. Now, the preacher also concluded that um, the accumulated works that have been accomplished by man under the sun are essentially uh, meaningless or vanity, chasing after the wind. 
Well, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, that outlook corresponds closely to one of Gilgamesh's statements. He says this, Only the gods live forever under the sun. As for mankind, their days are numbered. Whatever they achieve is but wind. Other parallels to Ecclesiastes found in Gilgamesh include the mention of the three-stranded cord when commenting on friendship and the point that no aspect of life is permanent. And you'll see that even come out here in chapter 1. He speaks of permanence and impermanence. So how do we take all this? What are we saying? Is there cause for concern? I mean, are we just reading a, a redo of the Epic of Gilgamesh? Well, listen, it's not uncommon for biblical texts to follow the pattern um, of non-biblical counterparts, even to the point of citing them. We have seen that. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, if you were to actually sit down and study it, you'd be forced to study that it follows the pattern of an ancient Near Eastern treaty. That is actually how it's written, because that's how they did those things in those days. So they borrowed the form of how that would have been done. Paul cited a poet's description of Crete, didn't he, in Titus. So there's no worry there. There's also no suggestion that Ecclesiastes as a whole is modeled after Gilgamesh. You won't even, you won't even, see, you wouldn't even known had I not mentioned that to you. There are enormous uh, differences between the two. Ecclesiastes, for example, is not a story. It's not a poem. Uh, it doesn't tell a story. It's not a narrative. Epic of Gilgamesh, well, yeah, epic, right? It's, it's a story. So there's no, no worry there. And, and although the call to, to, to joy here in Ecclesiastes 9, what we looked at, finds its, its closest parallel in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the wording is not the same. No scholar suggests that what Solomon did was just simply lift the lines from Gilgamesh and put it in here. And that's not what we're saying at all. What I'm saying is that the kingdom of Solomon had strong contacts with those nations when they thrived. But if you were to forward the time of the writing right, to the divided kingdom when Egypt and Mesopotamia had lost their glory, it's really uh, not thinkable that those things would have been available to him. And I think, if anything, the similarity that we see here reinforces the credibility of the, that Solomon wrote this book, since no other time in Israelite history uh, was it so notable for its strength. So that's just one thing I wanted to mention to you today. But who is the audience? Who is this written to? Why, why, what's this about? If you just look at the very end of uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 11, verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. He speaks to a young man there. And then later in chapter 12, verse uh, 1, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. So he seems to be speaking to the next generation, the young people. And you add to the fact that this, this book is one of the five scrolls known as the Megaloth. I mentioned that back for you who attended the Esther and Ruth studies. Those are five books that were specially set aside and read at special occasions. Esther and Ruth certainly were done. Um, so, so was Song of Solomon and Lamentations. Ecclesiastes was one of those as, as well. Because it's wisdom literature. We're in wisdom literature. Job and Proverbs are wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is written to, to help readers understand and cope with the practical and philosophical issues of life, right? That's what they're written about. And um, books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, well, they're the, the biblical answer to the search for truth, right? To the search for meaning. Proverbs 
just gives us basic wisdom. It gives us uh, fundamental principles to live by. Ecclesiastes approaches this through the life of Solomon, which is how it's different. It's not done in narrative, but it's done through, through questions, through examples, even some poetry and thoughts that are all derived from Solomon's own pilgrimage um, in his quest for meaning. And so we look at Ecclesiastes in this way. It represents the autobiography of Solomon because he squandered God's blessings um, on his own personal pleasures and pursuits for, for the majority of his life. And so he writes this to warn future generations not to make the same error. Instead, live for the glory of God. And since we're all prone to pursue the things of life rather than the things of God and the giver of life, well, we have a lot that we can learn from Solomon, can't we? After all, he is the wisest man who ever lived. So Solomon says at the end of his life here, you picture this, he has gathered all the young men of the kingdom to before him, right? And if you were a young man wanting to learn from someone wise, you would be eager to hear. Like I was always eager to, uh, to, to, to you know, be before Pastor Glenn, right? Every time he opened his mouth, I was like, shh, shh right? Because that man, you know, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know. You know, he, he just, he had wisdom constantly coming out. And I would just imagine these men coming before Solomon, like, what is he going to say? Like, this, he knows everything, right? And just be ready with pen and paper, like, just let it go, buddy. I'm ready to write it. So let's read the words of the preacher today. The words of the preacher coming out. We'll look at the first chapter here. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. How would you like to have those be the first words out? Wait, come again? Vanity? What do you mean? What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is due. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I commune with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word today and to 
Lord, begin a new study this year, a new study into the Old Testament and to wisdom literature. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek to understand the writings of the wisest man who ever lived. Lord, this is still Holy Spirit inspired. And so we recognize that we still need your Spirit. Grant us your Spirit and his wisdom today, Lord, and open up our minds to what you want to show us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very simple outline today. The words of the preacher, the first thing we're going to look at here in the first 11 verses, and I'm just going to, you probably saw it there. The way Solomon approaches this quest is he gives us the conclusion at the beginning. He tells us the results of his quest with the very first words out of his mouth. These young men are waiting to hear these pearls of wisdom dripping out of Solomon's mouth, and he just comes out swinging, and he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In case you didn't get that the first time, he says it again, right? Vanity of vanities. It's, it's just piled in there. What is this word that he's using? You ready for some of the Hebrew? It's hevel, hevel, and it means in one sense, and probably the main sense that's being used here, a breath or a wind or a vapor. Your uh, NIV will translate this meaningless. Maybe you have that version, Havel. And when you put um, Havel in conjunction with some of the phrases that are used here, you get some different perspective here. Havel is used in conjunction with grasping for the wind. It's also used with uh, what profit is there, what value is there. And it's a, a word uh, Solomon will use 37 times. When you see a word used that many times, you know he's trying to make a point. Vanity is all through this passage. And metaphorically, this, this, this Hebrew word refers to what is unsubstantial, without real value. Um, it's seen compared... Um, to the characteristics of wind and vapor, um, and it carries the idea then of something that's fleeting, right? Something that's transitory. In chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? It's just fleeting. He even uses it in the idea of something that's perplexing or somewhat mysterious. In chapter 8, verse 14, he says there is of vanity, there's the word again, which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. And again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, right? What happens to the wicked happens to the righteous. What happens to the righteous happens to the wicked. This is just perplexing. So he says it's vanity. It's even used to, to help us understand something that's unseen or something that's obscure. In chapter 11, verse 8, he says, if a man lives many years, and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. All that's coming. We don't even know what that is. It's unseen. This word havel is used elsewhere in the Old Testament with that sort of fleeting idea. In Job chapter 7, verse 16, he says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. Havel. In Psalm 39, verse 5, Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor, as his best state. And the New Testament touches on that idea, doesn't it? You're probably very familiar with that in James, right? In James chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, 
James writes this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And I think that's the idea Solomon is, is getting at here. It's, 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 it's meaningless. It doesn't have any lasting value. It's all meaningless. Now, so Solomon spoils it for us here at the beginning and spoils it for these young men that want to hear these pearls of wisdom. And so he wants to help us understand how he reached that conclusion. And so he asks two questions, and that's what we'll primarily look at today. There's two questions of the preacher, and the first one is here in verse 3. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What profit, he says. Profit is another word you're going to see a lot in this, in this book. It's used 10 times, and it is the word yethrone, yethrone. And what he means by that is what, what gain does he have? What advantage what is the real value that is left over? Um, Solomon will use the word prophet in one of his own Proverbs. In Proverbs 14, 23, he writes, In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. You could read that proverb and then read this from Solomon's and go, wait, wait, I, from Ecclesiastes and be confused, right? He says, what profit is there? And then in his proverb, he says, well, all labor, there is profit. Why do we see this difference? Well, in his proverb, he uses a different word for profit. He uses mothar, mothar. And the word there has the idea of preeminence or abundance or superiority. You see that? It's something that is superior to the other. Labor is superior to one who is lazy, is what he's saying there. Solomon used that same word in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19. So when you get there, you need to know that he's using a different word for um, prophet. It's not the yithron, it's mothar. And that verse says, what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all his vanity. So some translations put the word prophet, but mine says advantage to help us understand it's a different word. What is the advantage? Man doesn't have one because they die and animals die. It's all the same. That's his point there. But his point here with prophet in verse 3, yithrone, right, is something deeper. He's probing for something deeper. What real value do you have from all your life on earth? Here's the question. What do we gain when it's all said and done, when you've packed it all in, all right, <laughs> What's in it for you? You've worked, you've, you've climbed the ladder, you've done all this, you've, 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 what do you achieve from all the stress and work and pain and toil? Or is life cheating you out some way? That's the question. What's left over for you? And he noticed, he says, in which he toils under the sun. Under the sun is another phrase, I'd underlined it. You'll see uh, 30 times in Ecclesiastes. Under the sun is all through here because it shows, one, that the writer's interest is universal. He's not just thinking about his people in his land. He's thinking about universal. It's synonymous with under heaven, right? Or when we read on earth. Under the sun means this is a universal problem. 
The question I'm asking, it applies to everybody. What do you have after you've given it all? What's left over under the sun? But it also limits his question to the, and this is so important to understand, to the horizontal plane. Ecclesiastes can be very confusing if you don't understand this idea, that Solomon is only looking at things from this perspective. As I work and labor under the sun with no real recognition of anything vertical, just here, from that perspective, what value do you have? And the point is, you need to have this perspective. But he approaches this with just under the sun. When I just look at this, not this, this, with, with the eyes of man and the wisdom of man, and I ask that question, what profit is there? What's his conclusion going to be? Well, his conclusion is given to us. It's meaningless. It's vanity. And he provides evidence for us in the next few verses. Because naturally, those men, well, how do you reach that conclusion? right? I mean, look at you. You're great. You're the richest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived. Why would you reach that conclusion? Well, he begins to present some evidence through here, and this is another important thing to keep in your mind as we go through this. When, when Solomon is presenting evidence, he is only interested in empirical evidence. You know what I'm saying when I say empirical evidence? Evidence that is, is, that is, is tested, that is observed and documented, right? that is experimented. It appeals to the senses. That's the only evidence he's looking. He's not concerned with anything uh, beyond. You can't test that. He's just looking here. When I present empirical evidence, when I open my eyes and I look at the world, this is what I see. And that's what he's doing here. Look what he says in verse 4. 4 through 8, these are the futile repetitions of life that he notices, right? That these, it just seems like we're in this endless cycle, right? Some of you Families experience that, right? You get in places where you're like, just in, I'm just in a rut. I feel like we just wake up and cl- we just, the same thing happens every a, a day. It's just a futile repetition. And you, you probably have thought this in your mind. Where is this, what's this all going to add up to at the end, right? That's his idea here. And look what he says in verse 4. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides uh, forever. Uh, here, the essence Solomon is going for is that idea of permanence and impermanence. What, what is the permanent thing in here? Well, it's the earth. And you might say, well, the earth isn't going to be permanent. That's not his point. Right now, it is, right? Because that remains, and man comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes, but the earth just remains. It always is there. But men come and go. One generation passes, another replaces it. The earth is huge. It's permanent. Man is small and, and transitory, and the labor of one generation is replaced by the labor of another and we even recognize the passing of generations. We name them to help us with that, right? I just recently saw something on Facebook to help people remember which generation is what. And it says, yeah, well, X is followed by Y. Oh, and Y is followed by Z or Z, right? Like, oh, okay, that's helpful. <laughs> Naturally, <laughs> right? Uh, but there's like, well, the millennials, and there's this, and they, you know, the baby boomers are this. They're trying to like lay it out. We name them ourselves. We recognize, well, that was that generation, and that has passed, and this is a new generation. We do the same thing, and Solomon is saying the same thing. Yeah, well, one generation passes, another follows. That's how it happens. And so then he turns to nature. Look what he says in verse 5. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down and hastens uh, to the place where it arose. I mean, this this is the evidence he's supporting here just from the natural realm. 
Look at the sun. It works day after day after day. It just does the same thing. It never changes. In fact, the word there, it hastens, is sha'af, sha'af. And it literally means to gasp or pant or breathe heavily. You see his point? The idea is like the sun is just working, right? Think about the sun. The sun never gets night. The sun doesn't get to rest. It's always day for the sun, right? At least we get night and we can rest. But the sun, no matter where it goes, it's always day. It hastens to where it goes. It's panting in. It's working constantly. And it just does the same thing over and over and over again. In verse 6, he looks at the wind. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. He sees the wind as the same thing. It's in constant motion, but it never arrives at a fixed goal. Well, I would argue with Solomon here. I would say, no, it does. The goal is the Antelope Valley where I'm from. That's where all the wind in the world goes. Have you ever seen the pictures? All the trees lean like this. One place Solomon is wrong. No, his point is that it's just constantly whirling about, right? Just constantly, constantly. And then look, he looks at the water. Verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again, right? Rivers for all time continually flowing into the sea, yet the sea is not overflowing, doesn't fill it up. And then that same water returns to the river just to flow into the sea again, right? And he just sees this constant cycle. And and for Solomon, he's just seeing that these, these activities of nature are monotonous. They just seem futile doesn't accomplish anything. There's no benefit. It produces nothing of value. He's, he's just using that as evidence to support this. And so he concludes in verse 8, all things are full of labor, right? He's like, I see the sun. I see the wind. I see the, the, the rivers. It's all full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He even throws two more examples in there. I love that. The eye, it never ceases, right? It's always, it's always um, uh, working. Obviously, some of us would beg to differ. You know, it, it works less and less uh, here. But he's not talking about the eye failing to, to age or sickness or disease. He, the point is the eye in general is always working. It never reaches capacity. Could you imagine if it did? Like the hard drive on your computer? Like you've been waiting all your life to go see the Eiffel Tower and you go there and you're like, I can't wait to see it. Oh, oh, I can't see anything. I forgot to change the hard drive in my eyes. Like that could happen with your phone, right? Or you could bring a camera and forget to get film, but at least your eye can see it. Could you imagine if your eye just reached capacity? Nope, that's it. You're done. Oh, I've used it all up. I should have been more careful with how I use my eye. But it doesn't, does it? It's just constantly taking it in. And so with the ear, the ear is never filled with hearing. That's his point. All things labor continually. What's Solomon's point looking at nature? Well, Solomon was interested in nature. He knew a lot about nature. You can read that in 1 Kings chapter 4. And the scientist defines physical laws that have always operated, right? There's nothing he can tell us from nature that will give the meaning of life, though. They can just tell us that laws govern the universe, but they can't tell you the meaning of life by the laws. The biblical view of nature, however, is that there is a creator and nature points to the creator, but it does not compel belief in him, right? It doesn't force you to believe in him. It speaks of a creator, but the teacher here, the preacher, he is concerned with proof, 
rather than testimony. And he rightly maintains that, that meaning, security, that can't be found in nature alone. It's vanity. Everything else, it's, it's this endless cycle. So how can we break out of that temporal cycle into a state that leads somewhere else? That's his point. Can we? So that's his first question here. His second question comes in verse 10. I know we're skipping verse 9, but that's because he puts the question just a little bit later and answers it before the question. So look at verse 10. We'll come back to 9. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? So here's his other evidence. He's already presented sort of the, the futile repetitions. Here's the futile innovations. Is there really anything new, right? We see ourselves as a very innovative society, that there's all these new things, right? And certainly that's true. We, certain generations could look and say, well, I, 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 the iPhone, right? Who, who would have thought that? But look what Solomon says about these things in verse 9. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. I've always used that phrase in regards to entertainment and plots in entertainment. I say, well, there's nothing new under the sun. You can't recreate everything. You go back to the Greek tragedies, and they're the same soap operas you watch today. They're just rehashed, right? Repackaged. For me growing up, there was one innovation I thought was the, the creme de la creme. Because when you were growing up in my time, if you wanted to watch a movie, you just had to sit around and hope that it, it was aired on television, right? And, and for us growing up, I don't know why, it was just my family's favorite, but they, they, my parents loved The Wizard of Oz. And every year, once a year, it would come on TV. And we would get the TV guide, and we would mark when it would come. And I would look forward to the, it's the Wizard of Oz night. We'd make a big thing of popcorn. We'd watch it. And when the movie was getting near the end, right, they already melted the Wicked Witch, right, and she's about to go back home, I'd start to feel a little sadness, almost like some of you do when you get near the end of Christmas. you got to put, like, oh, it was such a sweet time, right? I feel that because I knew I wouldn't see Wizard of Oz again until the next year. <laughs> and then they came out with this amazing innovation, the VHS recorder. <laughs> yes. No, no. We didn't own one. No, no. You went to the store and you rented the VHS recorder. And they put it in this big bag. And then you also picked out a couple of VHS movies to watch on your VHS recorder. And you took this big thing home and you plugged it into the TV. And in the comfort of your own home, you watched the movie of your choosing. That was incredible. Absolutely amazing. And then they made them available and affordable to the common person. And we bought our own VHS recorder. And we began to make our own recordings of movies. Now, some of the kids are here going, what's a VHS recorder? My kids know what one is because before we moved here, we still had one. <laughs> I still have it. It's in storage. I've got an entire VHS re recording collection of, of movies. You know why? They're going to outlast DVDs. One scratch on a DVD, it's done. You drop a VHS cassette tape out a third-story window, that sucker will play. Right? You stuck it in the machine, and sure, it ate up the tape every now and then, but that was nothing a little patience and sellotape couldn't fix. And it would play again. VHS recorders coming back, I mean it. But seriously, is there really anything new? Look what he says in the second half of verse 10. It has already been in ancient times before us. Now, some of you are still thinking, but has it? I mean, the iPhone, let's talk about this. Here's a great quote that I think will help you understand what Solomon is trying to say. 
But you may say there are new things to make life exciting, new technologies, technologies that open up a whole new future. No, answers Solomon. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. New technology, in reality, only speeds things up, meeting the same old needs and desires faster and perhaps more efficiently, but the needs and desires are the same. To communicate, to heal, to influence, to destroy. Transcontinental communication is still an extension of the mouth. Magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, is an extension of the eye. Computers are an extension of the mind. And intercontinental ballistic missiles are an extension of this, the fist. But that's the idea. It's the same old, same old. It's just repackaged and new and maybe a little bit more efficient. Solomon is not denying man's creativity. Man is creative. He's just talking about the newness of man's accomplishments. The discovery of America and the first trip to the moon were both discoveries. And they required planning. And they had danger aspects. But they were both explorations to distant places. Do you see my point? That's Solomon's point. But Solomon adds one other piece of evidence here in verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. I, I, I know here uh, you all remember and talk about the Welsh revivals, but can I ask you, do people really remember the Welsh revivals? Because the buildings are empty. There are nightclubs and pubs and things like that. And you might have a few people who remember when people were standing in the window bays and in the streets because they couldn't fill themselves into the churches. We have written records, or maybe we have some monument or object that serves as a reminder of the event. But they're short-lived and people forget. We go see those giant rocks that are somewhat in a circle called Stonehenge, and we marvel at it, but let me tell you, I just go home and I continue my life as I did because we really don't know what all that was about. That will be the same of, of things now. We'll just continue on our lives as if those things never happened. I just read the news. Just read the news now, right? And they'll say, well, we're just keep, we keep doing things and we're ignoring history. Yes, that's the nature of man. We don't really care about the past. We go on with the future, and that is his point here. There's really no remembrance of the things that are in the past. We don't really care, is his point. And so, with his questions, he's come to that conclusion in verse 2. So, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It doesn't have any value whatsoever. And so... We have the quest of the preacher. Those are the questions of the preacher, but the quest of the preacher. He's going to introduce it to us today. We won't begin it until next week. But it's introduced to us today here. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. And then skip down to verse um, 13. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 16, I com commune with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness. I've gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. So here we just see that Solomon's quest is going to be this. He wants to use his wisdom under the sun 
to discover meaning of life. All that is done under heaven, again, it shows that limited world of view. He is operating with the resources available to him on earth, and he has set his heart, his inner life, his mind, his will, his motions to seek, to search out answers using wisdom, which is restricted under the sun. And here are his conclusions, again, given to us before he even begins. We'll see the quest begin next week. But look what he says here in verse 13. Four conclusions regarding wisdom. The first is this, wisdom is burdensome. Wisdom is burdensome. Look at verse 13, the second half there we haven't read. He said this, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. Exercised. Burdensome task given to men to exercise them. The word exercise is ana, ana, And it can mean to afflict or to humble or trouble someone, but it also can mean to just keep one occupied or busy. I say it's probably a little bit of both here. Wisdom is a burdensome task for man because man has a compulsion. And when I say man, you understand what I mean, mankind. Has a compulsion to, to think and to plan in order to understand what their life is about and where it's going. And he says, that's a burden everyone bears. I remember when I knew that I knew that I knew I was going to marry Jody. Right? When I, that was done, I just knew I, you know, the date was set and it was going to happen. There was a burden lifted because it's one of those burdens we carry of worry of like, oh, we're, what's going to happen with this? What's going to happen with this? We do that all our lives with every little bit. What's the next job? Where's the next this? What about the kid? It's, it's always there. He says, wisdom, it's a burdensome task. Everyone has it. You constantly got to be thinking about the future. What's going to happen next? It's a burdensome thing and all mankind has it. I heard this quote, the problem of life is no optional hobby. We all have to deal with the problem of life. The second point he says is wisdom is frustrated. Wisdom is burdensome, but wisdom is also frustrated. In verse 14, look what he says, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. This is the first time we see him using this phrase, grasping for the wind, and in conjunction with vanity, you certainly get the picture. Can you grasp wind? No, it can punch you in the face, but you can't grasp it. It has amazing power. We can harness the power of wind, but we can't grasp it. It's a vanity thing. It's a meaningless task. If you were to send someone out and tell them, hey, go out and grab as much wind as you, you can, they never finish that task. It's hope that wisdom will bring a sense of gain in life, a sense of satisfaction in the world around you and the world around Solomon. But this eludes Solomon. It eludes him. And so he says, it's grasping after the wind. Look, back, look what he says in verse 17. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. He'll talk more next week about the wisdom in conjunction with madness and folly. What he's saying is, I set my heart to, to use wisdom for these things, and I, I found out that it was grasping for the wind. I, it was a meaningless task. I would never accomplish it. So it's frustrated by his attempt there when he depended on observational research, again, right? Empirical evidence. Rather than divine revelation to understand life, then he found it to be empty. Many people do. 
many people find their lives to be empty, meaningless, because they're operating with this and not this. The third conclusion he comes to is this, wisdom cannot solve everything. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be numbered, right? The expected outcome of wisdom is success, right? And what is success supposed to bring you? Well, happiness. But there are no guarantees in life. This grieves the one who places his hope in human achievement alone. And when Solomon, with her, his surpassing you know, wisdom, he just looks at this and says, well, you know, there's, there's, there's things I can't fix, right? There are twists. There are gaps in life. What is crooked can't be made straight. Despite your greatest efforts, those crooked matters will remain unstraightened. Wisdom can help with some things, but it can't solve the fundamental problems of, of life. So wisdom cannot solve everything. His fourth conclusion is wisdom ultimately brings grief. Ultimately, it brings grief. And this is verse 18. We already looked at those verses in between. Verse 18, he says, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon had surpassing knowledge surpassing wisdom, the wisest man who ever lived. And he concludes his investigation that it's vanity, it's grasping for the wind, because he realized that his wisdom gave him real no, no real advantage, no real advantage at all. And that thought grieved him. He was gifted with such a great tool, and certainly it was used and used, in, used well in many places in his life. But this grieves him, and it grieves the one who places hope in that alone in human achievement, in human wisdom, you will be grieved if that is where you place it all. And so, so what is the conclusion of this matter? Solomon comes out with the conclusion and then gives us the evidence for that. And even before he begins the quest, says, even with my wisdom, this is not going to pan out. I'm just going to tell you from the beginning. But he's going to take us on the quest. But what's the proper perspective of wisdom? Uh, to close, I want to take you to Colossians chapter 2. Here's the proper perspective. Colossians chapter 2. We'll close with this. Paul is praying for the church there and the church in Laodicea as well. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge, all hidden in Christ. Knowledge is simply the apprehension of the truth, right? It is the, the gaining of truth. Wisdom is the application of that truth. That is, that is how that works together. But both are found ultimately in Christ. Solomon's quest was to see the usefulness or, or value of wisdom, but restricted under the sun, right? If I don't try to find that in Christ, if I just try to use the senses, empirical evidence, observation, when I observe life as it is, the endless toil and the cycles, I just see no value, and that's why you have the people you do making such 
uh, loud clamor about there's no God and, and, and right, the Richard Dawkins of this world see no value to these things because they're only looking with these eyes. They should take a note and they should take a lesson from the one who did that and said, that just proved to be vanity. It proved to me meaningless. So long as wisdom is restricted to the realm under the sun, it sees the throbbing tumult of creation, life scurrying around its ever repetitive circuits and nothing more. That is the truth. So Solomon is going to say, this is what you get when you look at it this way. And he's going to take us on the adventure. And he's going to show us on his quest, here's what I did. Here's how I did it all the way through. And hopefully by the end, we may see a different conclusion. You will see. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you so much for your word today and for the wise words of Solomon as he has looked at the endless, futile cycles of life, the labor of man, the works and human achievement of man, and his conclusion is it just doesn't add up to anything ultimately. And that is true because ultimately we're to live for your glory and not ours. And God, I just thank you for Solomon and for his wisdom and, and for the writings here in Ecclesiastes. And I just pray, Lord, that as we begin this study and we are in this book for the next few months, Lord, that you would just really encourage our hearts. Lord, there is value to wisdom as we will see that we would apply that wisdom, but apply it in the way that you've called us to, that we realize that it's truly only found in you, that we must have the knowledge of the truth, and we must apply that truth through the wisdom that we can only get from you. So God, we just pray for that. Help us by the power of your spirit to live that way for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.